Chapter Three of Triplanetary, First in the Lensman Series by E. E. Doc Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Phil Chenever. Chapter Three: The Fall of Rome. Edor. Like two high executives of a Tellurian corporation discussing business affairs during a chance meeting at one of their clubs, Edor's all highest and Garlane, his second in command were having the Edorian equivalent of an after-business-hours chat. "'You did a nice job on Tellus,' the All-Highest commended. "'On the other three, too, of course, but Tellus was so far and away the worst of the lot that the excellence of the work stands out. When the Atlantean nations destroyed each other so thoroughly, I thought that this thing called democracy was done away with forever, but it seems to be mighty hard to kill.' However, I take it that you have this Rome situation entirely under control. Definitely. Mithridates of Pontus was mine. So were Sulla and Marius. Through them and others I killed practically all of the brains and ability of Rome, and reduced that so-called democracy to a howling, aimless mob. My Nero will end it. Rome will go on by momentum, outwardly, will even appear to grow for a few generations, but what Nero will do can never be undone. Good, a difficult task, truly. Not difficult exactly, but it's so damned steady. Garlane's thought was bitter. But that's the hell of working with such short-lived races. Since each creature lives only a minute or so, they change so fast that a man can't take his mind off of them for a second. I've been wanting to take a little vacation trip back to our old-time space, but it doesn't look as though I'll be able to do it until after they get some age and settle down. That won't be too long. Lifespans lengthen, you know, as races approach their norms. Yes, but none of the others is having half the trouble that I am. Most of them, in fact, have things coming along just about the way they want them. My four planets are raising more hell than all the rest of both galaxies put together, and I know that it isn't me. Next to you, I'm the most efficient operator we've got. What I'm wondering about is why I happen to be the goat. Precisely because you are our most efficient operator. If an Adorian can be said to smile, the All-Highest smiled. You know as well as I do the findings of the Integrator. Yes, but I am wondering more and more as to whether to believe them unreservedly or not. Spores from an extinct life-form, suitable environments, operation of the laws of chance, Tommy Rot. I'm beginning to suspect that chance is being strained beyond its elastic limit for my particular benefit, and as soon as I can find out who is doing that straining, there will be one empty place in the innermost circle. Have a care, Garlane. All levity, all casualness disappeared. Whom do you suspect? Whom do you accuse? Nobody, as yet. The true angle never occurred to me until just now, while I have been discussing the thing with you, nor shall I either suspect or accuse, ever. I shall determine, then I shall act. In defiance of me, of my orders? The All-Highest demanded, his short temper flaring. Say, rather, in support, the lieutenant shot back unabashed. If someone is working on me through my job, what position are you probably already in without knowing it? Assume that I am right. 
that these four planets of mine got the way they are because of a monkey business inside the circle. Who would be next? And how sure are you that there isn't something similar but not so far advanced already aimed at you? It seems to me that serious thought is in order. Perhaps so. You may be right. There have been a few unconformable items. Taken separately, they do not seem to be of any importance. But together, and considered in this new light, thus was borne out the conclusion of the Arisian elders, that the Adorians would not at that time deduce Arisia, and thus Edor lost its chance to begin in time the forging of a weapon with which to oppose effectively Arisia's civilization's galactic patrol so soon to come into being. If either of the two had been less suspicious, less jealous, less arrogant and domineering, in other words, had not been Edorians, this history of civilization might never have been written, or written very differently and by another hand. Both were, however, Edorians. Arisia In the brief interval between the fall of Atlantis and the rise of Rome to the summit of her power, Euconidor of Arisia had aged scarcely at all. He was still a youth. He was, and would be for many centuries to come, a watchman. Although his mind was powerful enough to understand the elder's visualization of the course of civilization, in fact he had already made significant progress in his own visualization of the cosmic all. He was not sufficiently mature to contemplate unmoved the events which, according to all Arisian visualizations, were bound to occur. "'Your feeling is but natural, Euconidor,' Droneley, the molder, principally concerned with the planet Tellus, meshed his mind smoothly with that of the young watchman. "'We do not enjoy it ourselves, as you know. It is, however, necessary. In no other way can the ultimate triumph of civilization be assured.' But nothing can be done to alleviate— Euconidor paused. Drudely waited. Have you any suggestions to offer? None, the younger Arisian confessed. But I thought you, or the elders, so much older and stronger could— We cannot. Rome will fall. It must be allowed to fall. It will be Nero, then, and we can do nothing? Nero. We can do little enough. Our forms of flesh, Petronius, Octae, and the others, will do whatever they can, but their powers will be exactly the same as those of other human beings of their time. They must be and will be constrained, since any show of unusual powers, either mental or physical, would be detected instantly and would be far too revealing. On the other hand, Nero, that is, Garlane of Edor, will be operating much more freely. Very much so practically unhampered, except in purely physical matters. But if nothing can be done to stop it, if Nero must be allowed to sow his seeds of ruin, and upon that cheerless note the conference ended. Rome But what have you, Livius, or any of us, for that matter, got to live for? demanded Patroclus the gladiator of his cellmate. We are well fed, well kept, well exercised, like horses. But, like horses, we are lower than slaves. Slaves have some freedom of action. Most of us have none. We fight, fight whoever or whatever our cursed owners send against us. 
Those of us who live fight again, but the end is certain and comes soon. I had a wife and children once. So did you. Is there any chance, however slight, that either of us will ever know them again, or learn even whether they live or die? None. At this price is your life worth living? Mine is not. Livius the Bithian, who had been staring out past the bars of his cubicle and over the smooth sand of the arena toward Nero's garlanded and purple-bannered throne, turned and studied his fellow gladiator from toe to crown. The heavily muscled legs, the narrow waist, the sharply tapering torso, the enormous shoulders. The leonine head, surmounted by an unkempt shock of red-bronze auburn hair, and lastly the eyes, gold-flecked tawny eyes, hard and cold now, with a ferocity and a purpose not to be concealed. I have been more or less expecting something of this sort, Livia said then quietly. Nothing overt. You have builded well, Patroclus. But to one who knows gladiators, as I know them, there has been something in the wind for weeks past. I take it that someone swore his life for me, and that I should not ask who that friend might be? One did. You should not. So be it. To my unknown sponsor, then, and to the gods I give thanks, for I am wholly with you. Not that I have any hope. Although your tribe breeds men, from your build and hair and eyes you descend from Spartacus himself. You know that even he did not succeed. Things are worse now, infinitely worse, than they were in his day. No one who has ever plotted against Nero has had any measure of success, not even his scheming slut of a mother. All have died in what fashions you know. Nero is vile, the basest of the base. Nevertheless, his spies are the most efficient that the world has ever known. In spite of that, I feel as you do. If I can take with me two or three of the Praetorians, I die content. But by your look, your plan is not what I thought, to storm vainly Nero's podium yonder. Have you by any chance some trace of hope of success? More than a trace, much more. The Thracian's teeth bared in a wolfish grin. His spies are, as you say, very good. But this time so are we, just as hard and just as ruthless. Many of his spies among us have died. Most, if not all, of the rest are known. They, too, shall die. Gladius, for instance. Once in a while, by the luck of the gods, a man kills a better man than he is. But Gladius has done it six times in a row without getting a scratch. But the next time he fights, in spite of Nero's protection, Gladius dies. Word has gone out, and there are gladiators' tricks that Nero never heard of. Quite true. Uh, one question, and I may begin to hope. This is not the first time that gladiators have plotted against Ahenobarus. Before the plotters could accomplish anything, however, they found themselves matched against each other, and the signal was always for death, never for mercy. Has this... Livius paused. It has not. It is that which gives me the hope I have. Nor are we gladiators alone in this. We have powerful friends at court, one of whom has for days been carrying a knife sharpened especially to slip between Nero's ribs. 
that he still carries that knife and that we still live are proofs enough for me that Ahinobarus the matricide and incendiary has no suspicion whatever of what is going on. At this point Nero on his throne burst into a roar of laughter, his gross body shaking with a merriment which Petronius and Tigellinus ascribed to the death throes of a Christian woman in the arena. Is there any small thing which I should be told in order to be of greatest use? Livius asked. Several. The prisons and the pits are so crowded with Christians that they die and stink, and a pestilence threatens. To mend matters, some scores of hundreds of them are to be crucified here tomorrow. Why not? Everyone knows that they are poisoners of wells and murderers of children, and practitioners of magic, wizards and witches. True enough. Patroclus shrugged his massive shoulders. But to get on, tomorrow night at full dark, the remaining hundreds who have not been crucified are to be— Have you ever seen a Sarmentii and Simoxii? Once only. A gorgeous spectacle, truly. Almost as thrilling as to feel a man die on your sword. Men and women, wrapped in oil-soaked garments, smeared with pitch and chained to posts, make splendid torches indeed. You mean, then, that— Aye, in Caesar's own garden, when the light is brightest, Nero will ride in parade, when his chariot passes the tenth torch, our ally swings his knife. The Praetorians will rush around, but there will be a few moments of confusion, during which we will go into action, and the guards will die. At the same time, others of our party will take the palace and kill every man, woman, and child adherent to Nero. Very nice, in theory. The Bithian was frankly skeptical. But just how are we going to get there? A few gladiators, such champions as Patroclus of Thrace, are at times allowed to do pretty much as they please in their free time, and hence could possibly be on hand to take part in such a brawl. But most of us will be under lock and guard. That, too, has been arranged. Our allies near the throne, and certain other nobles and citizens of Rome, who have been winning large sums by our victories, have prevailed upon our masters to give a grand banquet to all gladiators tomorrow night, immediately following the mass crucifixion. It is going to be held in the Claudian Grove, just across from Caesar's gardens. Ah! Livius breathed deep, his eyes flashed. By Baal and Bacchus, by the round-high breasts of Isis, for the first time in years I begin to live. Our masters die first, then and there. But hold, weapons will be provided. Bystanders will have them, and armor and shields under their cloaks. Our owners first, yes, and then the Praetorians. But note, Livius, that Tigellinus, the commander of the guard, is mine, mine alone. I personally am going to cut his heart out. Granted. I heard that he had your wife for a time, but you seem quite confident that you will still be alive tomorrow night. By Baal and Ishtar, I wish I could feel so. With something to live for at last, I can feel my guts turning to water. I can hear Charon's oars. Like as not now, some toe-dancing stripling of a retiarius will entangle me in his net this very afternoon, and no mercy signal has been or will be given this day such as the crowd's temper from caesar down that even you will get police verso if you fail true enough 
But you had better get over that feeling if you want to live. And for me, I'm safe enough. I have made a vow to Jupiter, and he who has protected me so long will not desert me now. Any man or anything who faces me during these games dies. I so hope. But listen, the horns, and someone is coming. The door behind them swung open. A Lanista, or Master of Gladiators, laden with arms and armor, entered. The door swung to and was locked from the outside. The visitor was obviously excited, but stared wordlessly at Patroclus for seconds. "'Well, Ironheart,' he burst out finally, "'aren't you even curious about what you have got to do today?' "'Not particularly,' Patroclus replied, indifferently, "'except to dress to fit. Why, something special?' "'Extra special! The sensation of the year! Fermius himself! Unlimited, free choice of weapons and armor!' "'Fermius!' Livius exclaimed. "'Fermius the Gaul? May Athene cover you with her shield!' "'You can say that for me, too,' the Lanista agreed callously. "'Before I knew who was entered, like a fool, I met a hundred sesterces on Patroclus here, at odds of only one to two against the field. But listen, Bronzehead, if you get the best of Fermius, I'll give you a full third of my winnings.' "'Thanks. You'll collect.' A good man, Fermius, and smart. I've heard a lot about him, but never saw him work. He has seen me, which isn't good, both heavy and fast, somewhat lighter than I am, and a bit faster. He knows that I always fight Thracian, and that I'd be a fool to try anything else against him. He fights either Thracian or Samite, depending upon the opposition. Against me, his best bet would be to go Samite. Uh, do you know? No, they didn't say. He may not decide until the last moment. Unlimited against me. He'll go Samite. He'll have to. These Unlimiteds are tough. But it gives me a chance to use a new trick I've been working on. I'll take that sword there, no scabbard, and two daggers beside my Gladius. Give me a mace. The lightest real mace they've got in the armory. A mace? Fighting Thracian against a Samite? Exactly, a mace. Am I going to fight Fermius, or do you want to do it yourself? The mace was brought, and Patroclus banged it with a two-handed roundhouse swing against a stone of the wall. The head remained solid upon the shaft. Good. They waited. Trumpets blared. The roar of the vast assemblage subsided almost to silence. Grand champion Fermius! Versus Grand Champion Patroclus, came the raucous announcement. Single combat. Any weapons that either chooses to use, used in any way possible. No rest, no intermission. Enter. The two armored figures strode toward the center of the arena. Patroclus's armor, from towering helmet down, and including the shield, was of dully gleaming steel, completely bare of ornament. Each piece was marred and scarred. Very plainly, that armor was for use and had been used. On the other hand, the Samite half-armor of the Gaul was resplendent with the decorations affected by his race. Fermius's helmet sported three brilliantly colored plumes. His shield and curious, enameled in half the colors of the spectrum, looked as though they were being worn for the first time. Five yards apart, 
the gladiator stopped and wheeled to face the podium upon which Nero lolled. The buzz of conversation, the mace had excited no little comment and speculation, ceased. Patroclus heaved his ponderous weapon into the air. The Gaul whirled up his long, sharp sword. They chanted in unison, Ave Caesar Imperator, Morituri te salutant. The starting flag flashed downward, and at its first sight, long before it struck the ground, both men moved. Fermius wheeled and leaped, but fast as he was, he was not quite fast enough. That mace, which had seemed so heavy in the Thracian's hands a moment before, had become miraculously maneuverable. It was hurtling through the air, directly toward the middle of his body. It did not strike its goal. Patroclus hoped that he was the only one there who suspected that he had not expected it to touch his opponent. But in order to dodge the missile, Fermius had to break his stride, lost momentarily the fine coordination of his attack, and in that moment Patroclus struck, struck, and struck again. But, as has been said, Fermius was both strong and fast. The first blow, aimed backhanded at his bare right leg, struck his shield instead. The left-handed stab, shield encumbered as the left arm was, ditto. So did the next trial a vicious forehand cut. The third of that mad flurry of sore cuts, only partially deflected by the sword which Fermius could only then get into play, sheared down and a red and green and white plume floated toward the ground. The two fighters sprang apart and studied each other briefly. From the gladiator's standpoint, this had been the veriest preliminary skirmishing. That the Gaul had lost his plumes, and that his armor showed great streaks of missing enamel, meant no more to either than that the Thracians' supposedly surprised attack had failed. Each knew that he faced the deadliest fighter of his world, but if that knowledge affected either man, the other could not perceive it. But the crowd went wild. Nothing like that first terrific passage at arms had ever before been seen. Death, sudden and violent, had been in the air. The arena was saturated with it. Hearts had been ecstatically in throats. Each person there, man or woman, had felt the indescribable thrill of death, vicariously, safely, and every fiber of their lusts demanded more, more. Each spectator knew that one of those men would die that afternoon. None wanted or would permit them both to live. This was to the death, and death there would be. Women, their faces blotched and purple with emotion, shrieked and screamed. Men stamping their feet and waving their arms yelled and swore, and many, men and women alike, laid wagers. Five hundred sesterces on Fermius, one shouted, tablet and stylus in air. Taken, came an answering yell. The Gaul is done. Patroclus all but had him there. One thousand you, came another challenge. Patroclus missed his chance and will never get another. A thousand on Fermius. Two thousand, five thousand, ten. The fighters closed, swung, stabbed. Shields clanged vibrantly under the impact of fended strokes. Swords whined and snarled, back and forth, circling, giving and taking ground. For a minute after endless minute, 
that desperately furious exhibition of skill, of speed and of power and of endurance went on. And as it went on, longer and longer past the time expected by even the most optimistic, tension mounted higher and higher. Blood flowed crimson down the Gaul's bare leg, and the crowd screamed its approval. Blood trickled out of the joints of the Thracian's armor, and it became a frenzied mob. No human body could stand that pace for long. Both men were tiring fast and slowing. With the drive of his weight and armor, Patroclus forced the Gaul to go where he wanted him to go. Then, apparently gathering his every resource for a final effort, the Thracian took one short choppy step forward and swung straight down with all his strength. The blood-smeared hilt turned in his hands, the blade struck flat and broke, its length whining viciously away. Fermius, although staggered by the sheer brute force of the abortive stroke, recovered almost instantly, dropping his sword and snatching at his gladius to take advantage of the wonderful opportunity thus given him. But that breaking had not been accidental. Patroclus made no attempt to recover his balance. Instead, he ducked past the surprised and shaken Gaul. Still stooping, he seized the mace, which everyone except he had forgotten, and swung, swung with all the totalized and synchronized power of hands, wrists, arms, shoulders, and magnificent body. The iron head of the ponderous weapon struck the center of the Gaul's curious, which crunched inward like so much cardboard. Fermius seemed to leave the ground and, folded around the mace, to fly briefly through the air. As he struck the ground, Patroclus was upon him. The Gaul was probably already dead. That blow would have killed an elephant, but that made no difference. If the mob knew that Fermius was dead, they might start yelling for his life, too. Hence, by lifting his head and poising his dirk high in the air, he asked of Caesar his imperial will. The crowd, already fanatic, had gone stark mad at the blow. No thought of mercy could or did exist in that insanely bloodthirsty throng. No thought of clemency for the man who had fought such a magnificent fight. In cooler moments they would have wanted him to live, to thrill them again and yet again, but now for almost half an hour they had been loving the hot, the suffocating thrill of death in their throats. Now they wanted, and would have, the ultimate thrill. Death! The solid structure rocked to the crescendo roar of the demand. Death! Death! Nero's right thumb pressed horizontally against his chest. Every vestal made the same sign. Police verso, death. The strained and strident yelling of the mob grew even louder. Patroclus lowered his dagger and delivered the unnecessary and unfelt thrust, and Peractum est arose one deafening yell. Thus the red-haired Thracian lived, and also, somewhat to his own surprise, did Livius. I'm glad to see you, bronze heart. By the white thighs of Circes I am, that worthy exclaimed when the two met the following day. Patroclus had never seen the Bithynian so buoyant. Pallas Athene covered you like I asked her to, but by the red beak of Thoth and the sacred Xamphet of Tanith, it gave me the horrors when you made that throw so quick and missed it. 
and I went as crazy as the rest of them when you pulled the real coup. But now, curse it, I suppose we'll all have to be on the lookout for it. Or no, unlimiteds aren't common, thank Nehib the Smiter and his scarlet spears. I hear you didn't do so badly yourself, Patroclus interrupted his friend's loquacity. I missed your first two, but I saw you take Kalendios. He's a high raider, one of the best of the locals, and I was afraid he might snare you. But from the looks of you, you only got a couple of stabs. Nice work. Prayer, my boy. Prayer is the stuff. I prayed him in order and hit the jackpot with Shamash. My guts curled up again like they belong, and I knew that the portents were all in my favor. Besides, when you were walking out to meet Fermius, did you notice that red-headed Greek posturer making passes at you? Huh? Don't be a fool. I had other things to think of. So I figured. So did she. Probably, because after a while she came around behind with a lanista and made eyes at me. I must have the next best shape to you here, I guess. What a winch. Anyway, I felt better and better, and before she left... I knew that no damn Retiarius that ever waved the trident could put a net past my guard, and they couldn't either. A couple more like that, and I'll be a grand champion myself. But they're digging holes for the crosses, and there's the horn that the feast is ready. This show is going to be really good. They ate, hugely and with unmarred appetite, of the heaped food which Nero had provided. They returned to their assigned places to see crosses, standing as close together as they could be placed, and each burying a suffering Christian filling the whole vast expanse of the arena. And, if the truth must be told, those two men enjoyed thoroughly every moment of that long and sickeningly horrible afternoon. They were the hardest products of the hardest school the world has ever known trained rigorously to deal out death mercilessly at command, to accept death unflinchingly at need. They should not and cannot be judged by the higher, finer standards of a softer, gentler day. The afternoon passed, evening approached. All the gladiators in in Rome assembled in the Claudian Grove, around tables creaking under their loads of food and wine. Women, too, were there in profusion women for the taking and yearning to be taken, and the tide of revelry ran open wide and high. Although all ate and apparently drank with abandon, most of the wine was in fact wasted, and as the sky darkened most of the gladiators, one by one, began to get rid of their female companions under one pretext or another, and to drift toward the road which separated the festivities from the cloaked and curious throng of looker-ons. At full dark a red glare flared into the sky from Caesar's garden, and the gladiators, deployed now along the highway, dashed across it and seemed to wrestle briefly with cloaked figures. Then armed, more or less armored men ran back to the scene of their reveling. Swords, daggers, and gladii thrust, stabbed, and cut. Tables and benches ran red. Ground and grass grew slippery with blood. The conspirators turned then and rushed toward the emperor's brilliantly torch-lit garden. Patroclus, however, was not in the van. He had had trouble in finding a curious big enough for him to get into. He had been delayed further by the fact that he had had to kill three strange lanistae before he could get at his owner, the man he really wanted to slay. He was therefore some little distance behind the other gladiators, 
when Petronius rushed up to him and seized him by the arm. White and trembling, the noble was not now the exquisite Orbiter Elegantiae, nor the imperturbable Augustian. Patroclus! In the name of Bacchus, Patroclus, why do you mingle there now? No signal was given. I could not get to Nero. What? The Thracian blazed. Vulcan and his fiends? It was given. I heard it myself. What went wrong? Everything. Petronius licked his lips. I was standing right beside him. No one else was near enough to interfere. It was, should have been, easy. But after I got my knife out, I couldn't move. It was his eyes, Patroclus. I swear it by the white breasts of Venus. He has the evil eye. I couldn't move a muscle, I tell you. Then, although I didn't want to, I turned and ran. How did you find me so quick? I, I, I don't know, the frantic arbiter stuttered. I ran and ran, and there you were. But what are we, you, going to do? Patroclus's mind raced. He believed implicitly that Jupiter guarded him personally. He believed in the other gods and goddesses of Rome. He more than half believed in the multitudinous deities of Greece, of Egypt, and even of Babylon. The other world was real and close, the evil eye only one of the many inexplicable facts of everyday life. Nevertheless, in spite of his credulity, or perhaps in part because of it, he also believed firmly in himself, in his own powers, wherefore he soon came to a decision. Jupiter, ward from me Ahenobarbus's evil eye, he called aloud and turned. Where are you going? Petronius, still shaking, demanded. To do the job you swore to do, of course, to kill that bloated toad, and then give to Tigellinus what I have owed him so long. At full run, he soon overtook his fellows and waded resistlessly into the fray. He was grand champion Patroclus, working at his trade, the hard-learned trade which he knew so well. No Praetorian or ordinary soldier could stand before him save momentarily. He did not have all of his Thracian armor, but he had enough. Man after man faced him, and man after man died. And Nero, sitting at ease with a beautiful boy at his right and a beautiful harlot at his left, gazed appreciatively through his emerald lenses at the flaming torches, the while, with a very small fraction of his Adorian mind, he mused upon the matter of Patroclus and Tigellinus. Should he let the Thracian kill the commander of his guard, or not? It didn't really matter one way or the other. In fact, nothing about this whole foul planet, this ultra-microscopic, if offensive, speck of cosmic dust in the Adorian scheme of things really mattered at all. It would be mildly amusing to watch the gladiator consummate his vengeance by carving the Roman to bits, but on the other hand, there was such a thing as pride of workmanship. Viewed in that light, the Thracian could not kill Tigellinus, because that bit of corruption had a few more jobs to do. He must descend lower and lower into unspeakable depravity, finally to cut his own throat with a razor. Although Patroclus would not know it, it was better technique not to let him know it, the Thracian's proposed vengeance would have been futility itself compared with that which the luckless Roman was to wreck on himself. Wherefore, a shrewdly placed blow knocked the helmet from Patroclus's head, and a mace crashed down, spattering his brains abroad. Thus ended the last magnificent attempt 
to save the civilization of Rome in a fiasco so complete that even such meticulous historians as Tacitus and Suetonius mention it merely as a minor disturbance of Nero's garden party. The planet Tellus circled its sun some twenty hundred times. Sixty-odd generations of men were born and died, but that was not enough. The Erysian program of genetics required more. Therefore the elders, after due deliberation, agreed that that civilization, too, must be allowed to fall, and Garlane of Edor, recalled to duty from the middle of a much too short vacation, found things in very bad shape indeed, and went busily to work setting them to rights. He had slain one fellow member of the innermost circle, but there might very well have been more than one master involved. End of chapter 3